what that means it we are back we are back it's been a minute I, I left y'all hanging for a bit but I had things to do y'all I've been busy and your girl has been pressed and stressed at work my day job has been kicking my butt and so it has been sapping all my energy and all my desire to even work on record well actually I've been writing I've been writing the entire month um for the podcast Specifically for the Outlander reviews, I have basically every single episode review written, but I just have not been able to get it together enough to sit down and and actually record. But here it is. (laughs) So welcome back to the Obsessible Podcast Outlander review episodes. Outlander is back. It's currently airing on Stars on Sunday night at 9 in the US and on the W Network in Canada also at 9 o'clock. So I just want to go ahead and say that we are coming to the end of the season, but that doesn't matter because we, we are in the era of streaming and so not everybody has decided to watch each episode as it has aired every single weekend. So this podcast, this review, these episode reviews will be for those who decide to binge it once it's all out and then they want to now come back, find a podcast that's been talking about it and breaking it down like this one. Um, And so if you're new here, I'm your girl. I'm your host. My name is Nicole, or better known as Nikki, to my besties. And if you're listening, we are officially besties. If you showed up here looking for Outlander content, you are in the right place. And thank you so much for being here. I am definitely not going to spend too much time on introduction. I've already chatted for like a good minute and a half. And we want, I know what you want. You know what you want. You want Outlander tea spilled. You want to know what I thought about these episodes. And this is actually the second episode in my review series for Outlander. We're going to be covering episode three and four of season six of Outlander. And I just want you to know that the way that we do it over here on Obsessible is we talk about shows, TV, movies, like we would with our best friends, our colleagues, our family, our peoples, and sometimes even strangers. Because I mean, hey, I mean, you how many people have not commiserated with a stranger over some TV or movies, some rare reference that you've seen or heard them say, and you were like, oh my God, that's amazing. I love that show. I love that movie, right? Okay, well, this is what we're doing over here. Okay, so this is how dedicated episode reviews work. I'll review the episode, then I'll tell you a loved character moment, uh, a moment from a character I hated, and then an episode rating. Um, Then what what I'll do is I'll go over some tweets, because I always watch a show and scroll Twitter at the same time. So I want to share with you some tweets about the show that I found entertaining. And then from there, I'll say bye-bye, adios, adieu, ciao, alvirazine, Okay. However, I just want to point out for this particular episode, for episodes three and four, there really were no moments that I really actually like hated um, for these two episodes. So we're just going to kind of skip that. But there is a part that I just disliked. I wouldn't say hated per se. um, And I will make mention of that uh, largely just me shaking my head at them. 
I hope you're watching and enjoying the show. If you're not, and this is, you have just done your binge of the season and you want to go over uh, the review, then this is, this is the place to be. But there will be spoilers. So I hope you've seen the episodes already. Okay. So watch and then listen. But again, thank you so much for listening. Tell another friend so that we can keep building this tribe. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow. Let's get her done. Hey, Fergus, when I met you and the Lord, I found a world beyond a brothel and vowed never to return to such a place. But my son, I find himself in such a life. You can't think that Jamie... Or I, that we would allow such a thing to happen. Oh, you will not, lady, but you will not live forever. I wanted to use that moment because I'm, I'm definitely going to go back and address it. But this is a moment between Claire and Fergus, mother and son, um, in episode three. And it is heartbreaking. <laughs> heartbreaking. Um, the pain that Fergus is in is palpable. Um, though I've said this already that I'm just kind of like, Fergus, what's the problem? <laughs> what's going on with you? What is happening? Why are you behaving like this? What is this spiral about? But I'm going to get into that. Um, but I definitely wanted to use it as kind of like my moment to introduce the reviews for this particular episode. So let's jump into episode three. It is called A Father's Concern is this the name of the episode for in season three. Okay, a father's concern. So we have Claire, Jamie, Roger, Brianna, Ferguson, Marceline, you know, our favorite Fraser McKenzie mixed clan. And they have begun to start to work through the hurts of the past few months and are in check year, basically. And they're kind of like trying to mend. But that doesn't mean that people that live on the ridge are as open-minded as our favorite family. And this becomes very evident in the opening of the episode where we find we Henri, we Henri, <laughs> my, oh my God, my French accent just went to trash, <laughs> um, floating down the river in a basket set adrift by some very mischievous children who, because of the foolish notions, notions of their parents, wanted to see if the baby was a devil spawn and if he therefore could float. I mean, cause right. Cause that, if he could float, then definitely the devil, right? Stupid, stupid. <laughs> like I just, ugh, whatever. But thanks to the quick thinking of Roger, crisis is averted. But by the way, that Roger barked at the boys and gathered them, gathered up Germain with a quickness it was priceless. Poor Germain. I felt so sorry for him, especially when all of the, he made it back to the cab and had to go back and face the music and is sitting there with, in front of all of the adults and he's, and they're talking and he's just sitting there like, just like woefully. He's so little. I was just like, oh, poor baby. I just felt so sorry for him. But, um, it's obvious that he was kind of backed into a corner, but none, nevertheless, I mean, like, you can't just let people be punking you off out here, Jermaine. Like, you can't have anybody try to scoop up your little brother and throw him in the river. What's that? Like, what if something had really gone wrong? That is literally something that would have lived with him for the rest of his life, and you know Marceline would have never forgiven him. She would have tried, but boy, mm-mm. Had something happened to that baby, mm-mm, mm-mm, that would not have gone well for him. But nonetheless, the heaviness of the circumstances has Fergus feeling... You know, basically trying to make sense of what kind of life his son could have. And that is what I opened this this particular review part, this review segment with. Is And that's what 
were hearing him talk about and the things that he witnessed in the brothels of France further, he further becomes like dug into the belief um, and into his self-pity over not being there to help Marsley because he believes that the attack is what caused the dwarfism. No matter what Claire is trying to tell him, he is literally not wanting to hear what she has to say. And as a result, he kind of walks off uh, kind of mid-conversation and just goes about his business. Then we have Mr. Good Old Stiff-Necked Thomas Christie, who presents himself at the home, declaring that he is healed enough to be operated on. And so he arrives on Claire's doorstep to have his arthritic hand corrected, but refuses the ether, which the anesthetic, or not anesthetic. What is the word? What? <laughs> I'll figure that out. But ether. <laughs> I can't remember the word used in modern science. Never mind. He refuses the ether saying it's like the devil's juice, sir. Anyway, <laughs> like, I don't understand. Anyway. Um, and so he decides that he's going to suffer through surgery. Like someone, he decides he's going to choose the way of pain rather than have himself be put to sleep and allow himself to uh, not have to deal with the actual, like feeling the actual cutting. But, you know, the ether is the devil's juice, but he'll suck back the whiskey though. I mean, come on, like the, the logic, I'm judging, I'm judging heavily here. I don't know if you notice, but I am. Um, and decides instead to ply himself with whiskey and the word instead. Like I literally never in my life thought I would ever string that sentence together. Like the whiskey, whiskey and the word. They don't, what? <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Just like Thomas Christie. In any case, Brianna continues to engineer and create a spinning wheel for weaving that Marcelie absolutely loves, recognizing that she'll actually be able to do so much more faster, therefore allowing her to be more of a mom, taking care of her home, taking care of her children and her husband. So, but while discussing the wheel and gathering all of the children for their punishment, uh, a, fall, a small fight breaks out between the children over the wooden toy car that Jemmy plays with. And Marceline, being quick, questions the name of the toy. Vroom, right? Because that's what Brianna calls it. To which Brianna kind of coyly and responds and says that the fact that she calls it that is just the sound that Jemmy makes while he's playing with it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We all know that's because... Brianna's from the future and there are cars to which Marcelie's head would probably explode into a million pieces if she realized that the world evolves so far and so fast to the point where there are horseless carriages, um, much less a motorized carriage. Like what the heck? What's an engine? What the hell is gas? Turbine? <laughs> Never mind. None of those things exist. So obviously the fact that Jemmy is playing with a car can't call it that. Too anachronistic, right? So from there, we have Malva, who's basically caught spying on Mr. Christie's surgery by Ian, who then encourages her to head on home before getting caught by her father and Claire. Ian kind of begins to dig into Malva's backstory, as there's obviously one there, and he learns that Malva's mother was hanged as a witch when she was a child. I'm starting to really, at this point, I'm starting to get the distinct impression that none of the Christies are a good addition to Fraser's Ridge. Not near one of them, okay? Like, none of y'all. 
and I'm pretty sure before this season is over, that fact will be proven. And I'm, I'm, I'm highly, I'm highly suspicious, highly, highly, highly suspicious. In the aftermath, so in the aftermath of Henri's drowning scare or attempted float scare, Jamie kind of gathers all of the little ruffians who are responsible and tells them that they then have to choose between touching a hot iron, because they believe that if you touch the baby, he will burn you, uh, or actually touching Henri, which clearly nothing will happen if they do, if they do do that. So obviously, naturally, they choose to touch the child. And Jamie lovingly reminds them that Henri is his and they should remember that. He also reminds Germain that he is his older brother and he needs to be there to protect him and support him and have his back, right? Um, which Germain quickly, as soon as the, the boys realize, okay, there's nothing wrong with him, Germain stands up and is like, I told y'all there was, there was nothing wrong with my brother. I told y'all, but y'all wouldn't leave me alone. And now here we are. <laughs> But it all works out. The boys end up with some bread and honey and off running their own little mischief making selves out outside to go play. <laughs> Marcelie, after arriving home, discovers that Fergus is incredibly drunk. And he's obviously still very trapped in his own delusions about the cause of Henri's dwarfism. But this is it for Marcelie. She's just like, if you don't get your... So she puts her foot down and literally for the final time and tells Fergus the truth of Lionel's death. You would think that perhaps that might make Fergus feel like, oh, oh my God, my wife's a, a killer. What the heck? Maybe I don't need to be so pressed. But no, instead he puffs himself up even more, becomes even more prideful and storms out of the house. Like... But the thing that got me right was this whole statement. I don't need a woman to protect me. Sir, women have been protecting you your whole life. You worked in a brothel full of women protecting you. Then you met Claire, a woman who protected you. Women have been protecting you your whole life. So I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> what, 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 what was that? Pride and alcohol. Not the best mix. I don't think. Do y'all think? Definitely not the best mix at all. But, you know, the thing about it is, is that Fergus is not the only one who's struggling with everything that happened with the Brownsville men, specifically Lionel, who continues to haunt Claire. And she's still having visions. Um, and it's basically the, like, these visions cause her to have a base, a, basically a PST episode. And that's what leads her to abuse the ether. I'm, I'm just going to like, I'll talk about this now because it's very annoying to me. Um, all right. It was not, it's okay. This is not Claire. This is not Claire. It's not Claire. It's not how the Claire that we know would handle anything. She wouldn't run from an emotion and she wouldn't run from trauma. It's not like she hasn't been through stuff. Right. But I think what's going on here is that this is a culmination of everything but the way that she's choosing to handle it is very unclaire like and I'm, I'm just kind of like where's claire right you know like the claire that i know pulled jamie out like literally fought him out of his darkness after he was assaulted and i feel like she's not remembering that and it's and and not remembering that there is someone who will help her you know out of of the dark place that she's in but she needs to talk to him she needs to she needs to invite him into her situation and 
she's not really doing that and that's not even really claire like she doesn't really keep secrets like that from jamie um especially when it comes to trauma and the things of the like so i'm a little bit disappointed with her right now but i'm sure she'll find her way back but i don't i, I need it to happen and i need it to happen sooner than later so while Claire and Jamie are laying up in bed, they're talking about the day and specifically what happened with Thomas Christie. And, um, and you know, Jamie's telling her about the children and the choices that they made and what, what his decision was with regard to it. Um, and then she talks and then she tries to basically uh, use Thomas Christie being in her surgery and recovery as an excuse to go down and take some more ether. But because Thomas is awake, she can't really do that. So she uses the, the excuse to tend to his wounds and give him some food. So Claire goes downstairs to, well, she uses going, she uses Tom as an excuse to go downstairs. She finds herself down there, realizes that Tom is awake. Therefore, she cannot use the ether because she's having a moment and decides instead to see to his hand teach him what exercises he needs to perform in order to keep um, the hand healing, which seems odd considering that the surgery just happened that morning. So I don't know how much moving of a recently stitched hand would be happening. No, I'm not a doctor. I'm just saying that just seems odd. Um, and decides to prepare him some food. So... Initially, Tom's reaction to Claire touching him is kind of like very skittish, like, Yee. and she's like, look, just calm down. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to make, make sure everything's okay here. Like, whatever. So she spends some time talking to him. He asks her about her hair, why she walks around with her head uncovered, because, you know, I mean, I don't know what that is supposed to be. Anyway, so he realizes, he talks to her about that. She has some things that she, that she says, obviously, Claire knows that it's directly related to the time that they're in but she really kind of skates the line always right it's Claire she's gonna skate the line it's what she does she's gonna try you um and well hell she's trying the whole entire time that she's in because well she knows she's not supposed to be there so it is what it is but nonetheless that's Claire for you so after she has this encounter with Tom she ends up back upstairs and has a conversation with Jamie. But before I even talk about that conversation, which was probably one of the most awkward conversations ever, like, I was just like, whoa, like, how do you ask your man these questions? But nonetheless, uh, okay, let's talk about that. Claire can ask Jamie these things about his experience in Ardmuir, which is based on the fact that Tom was so skittish when she was touching him. And she asked Jamie some very pointed questions. Um, but can't feel the need, like, doesn't feel like she can share with him what she's going through. Doesn't seem to match up. I don't know. I feel like, yeah, of course, she can be obviously a very dynamic person, dynamic character. She is one for sure. But just the Claire we know just wouldn't, wouldn't not say something, wouldn't not share that part of her, wouldn't just keep that struggle to herself. So I'm just having a hard time with it. Okay. <laughs> I'm just having a hard time with it. But Claire in my mind just wouldn't be going through these things. Uh, or she would go through it, but not in the way that she's going through it. So I'm just, got, I'm yeah, struggling just a bit. All right, back to Tom. So I kind of think that there's something going on here. And if the book is any indication I am correct, and he has actually started to develop feelings for Claire, 
uh, spoiler alert, but um, I actually think that that's what's happening. I'm not sure if we're going to see like some full-blown manifestation of that, but something's going on there. Something. Like he's intrigued by her. I mean, most of the men who Claire comes into contact with who don't know about her history are kind of intrigued because she does stand out in very specific ways aside from the fact that she's an accomplished doctor and surgeon at a time when women were not really weren't doing that um they were considered healers and if you healed too well you would be called a witch so i mean who would want to go into medicine at this point but it's it's claire she's gonna do things her way so after uh the awkward conversation we find the next day has come and Ian and Malva are gathering rushes. Which leads to Malva flirting with Ian, who seems to like the attention. It's not like Malva's ugly, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm not, like, at this point, I'm kind of like, okay, I can actually see that little thick, okay, y'all little cute cells, I can see that working out. But I don't trust Malva, and I really feel like she's up to no good. Something about that girl screams vixen, like... Like, yeah, oh no, something's wrong. Something's wrong, something is off. Um, and I, I, yeah, let me, okay, so in the books, right? Actually, I'm not gonna tell you guys that yet. I'm gonna wait, <laughs> I'm gonna wait because obviously I'm recording this at a point when I have already watched up to episode seven. So I'm but I wrote this when I watched episode three originally. So of course I have some new knowledge now. But um, I'm going to wait to tell you what happens in the books until closer to the end of this whole review series. Okay? So yeah, right now, as of episode three, I don't trust Malva. I would not be mad at Ian and Malva getting together, but I don't trust her. And I want Ian to be with somebody who loves him and is good for him and makes him happy and even though we know that his heart is still broken he's still dealing with um the loss of his previous relationship and all that that entailed so i'm just kind of hoping that we're going to get someone for ian but i don't think it's malva so when thomas returns to have his check his hand checked after the surgery it's about a week or two later claire gives him a book to read and basically has a conversation with him about fiction. Now, can you imagine thinking that fiction writing is lies or illusions because the story wasn't true? What? 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 I just don't... I'm not going to go there because I'm a writer, fiction writer at that. And this is just... I, this logic is so silly to me that I'm just kind of like, okay, Tom, I ain't got nothing more for you. Like, Tom is the kind of person who I would just be like, you write, and I just walk away. <laughs> because we're not having conversations. I'm not going into a back and forth. The way you think is backward and stupid and based in I don't even know what. But yet you continually want to talk about how educated you are and how you don't believe certain things, but yet you believe stupidness all day, every day. Stupidness. That is my official way I'm going to describe it as stupidness. Okay. <laughs> I can't help but think that the fact that people's minds opened up 
as well as their ability to understand what is harmful thinking versus what is not, is probably one of the largest benefits of modernization, aside from medicine and technology. Like, just to have your brain conceptualize things as they are, as opposed to how whatever superstition, myth, and fantasy you use to incorporate your thinking. Like, as society as a whole, I mean that by, when I say you, I mean society. Like, just encompassed in foolishness. Just just rolling around in it. Um, okay, so I have a question. Is it me or is Malva everywhere? Is she everywhere? Because I feel like every every turn you turn some, especially the men, it's always the men, right? Every turn the man turns, a man turns, here's Malva. Malva, ma'am, don't you got things to do? Like, I think you feel like you're doing things, but I don't think you're doing things. Like, you're not doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so she happens upon Jamie or Jamie happens upon her in the woods, supposedly gathering mushrooms. But I really can't help but think that she positioned herself there. Like, I have no proof, but I don't trust any of these Christies, like none of them. And that feeling is no less amplified when in the next scene, Tom is reading the book that Claire gave him and he doesn't seem too pleased about the content of the book. This actually results in one of the funniest tweets I have read as it relates to Outlander, and I will actually share that with you. Today. Uh, quarter day has arrived, and when it does, the dues are owed, and all of the settlers come to pay their dues, come to pay their respects at the house. And a huge conflict erupts between Fergus and some of Christie's people, the fisher folk, who are basically judging Fergus based on his drunken state. And he is drunk. He's well and proper six sheets to the, with the wind. I would normally say three sheets, but he's far past three sheets. He basically responds by throwing whiskey in the in the wife's face. So it's a woman who's basically having this interaction with him and, and, and insulting him. And then the husband intervenes and he punches the husband with his good hand. And you know what, you know what I mean by that. Um... And Mr. Christie kind of steps in and admonishes admonishes them, which kind of surprises Claire. And I actually think he was surprised too, just by the look on his face. Because he was just kind of like, what am I actually saying right now? Like, I'm actually in agreement with them. But no, here I am actually defending this man, this drunkard. This, this person is clearly wrapped in sin. Why am I defending them? You know, that's what was going on in his head, right? But in truth, I think he actually agrees with the wife about the alcohol, right? Like, like I just said. Um... But also considering the amount he has consumed in Claire's presence for one reason or another, saying so would likely make him a hypocrite. And Claire would know that he's being a hypocrite. And worse, Jamie would know that he's being a hypocrite when Jamie did find out about all of this. So he decides to back the Frasers. That hypocrisy is furthered when Claire discovers the book she gave him wrapped in a cloth with a note saying this is filth. I thought better of you. Like, come on, brah. Come on. Like, I mean, based on what the the scene was giving when he was reading the book, I saw a couple of words, but I mean, it was, it's an old English. I don't know what those things are saying, but clearly it, was, it, had, it had definitely offended his delicate sensibilities and uh, he was none too pleased with Miss Claire as a result. I also think that Christie's emotions around Claire are directly linked to his feelings about his daughter, mm-hmm. Malva. Whether or not Malva is actually his daughter is yet to be proven because don't think that she is. And I think actually in the book, it's revealed that she's not. Um, 
But he goes home after quarter day and basically beats Malva while Alan cries for her outside. Now, Alan's reaction is a bit odd, perhaps, because we haven't really seen emotion connected to Malva's punishment. And we know that this has been happening for some time. This is not her first rodeo. And we know that based on the her reaction to it. Like, she just really doesn't respond. Um, and she kind of takes it very stoutly and doesn't really even shed a tear. Lucky for her, her back is turned because I think Tom would have beat her harder if he saw that she really was feeling nothing. I also feel like whatever Malva is doing or not doing is directly related to how she has been treated by Christy. Like, yeah, I think that she probably didn't have much of a chance as a result of him being her father because that man just seems to be wanting to take things out on her. And I really kind of think it's actually directly related to how he feels about himself. Um, but that doesn't bode well for her future. And I actually think that she's about to be a really big problem. Um, and like I said, now that I have foreknowledge, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm right about that. I'm going to say that I'm right. So as the episode comes to an end, a very despondent and very drunk Fergus decides that it would be best for Marcelie and the children if he took his own life. Likely prompted by seeing a man flirt with Marcelie at quarter day, then having to have that fight, a very public spectacle that followed. But he's seen by Jamie, who comes to him, and basically fights for him to save his life. From the moment that Fergus came into Jamie's life, he has looked out for him, protected him, loved him, and fought for him. And Fergus has really done the same. Fergus and Jamie's relationship is one of my favorites. And actually seeing Fergus grow into a man and have a love of his own, at first not approved by Jamie at all, but then become fully in adopted into Jamie's family, um, has literally been one of the best story arcs of the show. And it really was what Fergus needed all along. He just needed his dad to talk to him. And the love and the direction of his father is ultimately what saves him. So before we say goodbye to episode three, Colonel McDonald shows up with the guns that were requested for the Cherokee. And it looks like Jamie and Ian will be returning to visit the tribe. Up next, my review of episode four. All right. So I just had to go fall. I just fell down a hole trying to find a clip from episode three. It was my favorite moment of the scene. I've already talked about it, of the episode. I've already talked about it. But episode three has been pulled off of streaming, <laughs> off of the W network. And so I'm like, literally had to hunt down on the internet trying to find this clip. I'm going to play a modified version of it when I get to that segment. But nonetheless, also, it had me in tears. Don't judge me. Episode four. As episode four opens, we finally get a glimpse into the life that Ian led while with the Mohawk. And the adoption ceremony that he undergoes to bring him into the tribe is actually kind of a very unique way of kind of removing his whiteness <laughs> and bringing him into the spirit and culture of the Mohawk. His head is shaven, his face is tattooed, and he seems to bear it with pride and respect for the traditions. It's actually one of the great things about Ian. He accepts his position. He accepts the decision that he made to join them in, in exchange for Roger and embraces the whole entire experience, so much so that he finds himself a wife, a Mohawk wife, uh, who he calls Emily because he has a hard time pronouncing her name. 
He's given a new name, and in English, it's Wolf's brother, which kind of makes perfect sense since he goes everywhere with Rolo, who's supposed to be a wolf's pup and kind of does look like it, but is more likely like a mountain dog or some sort of husky German Shepherd blend breed. Very wolfish looking. Uh, after the credits roll, we find a bedded Jamie and Claire discussing the events of the day and a highly allergic Colonel McDonald sneezing up a storm in the kitchen. Jamie explains that he is off to deliver the guns the next day. So they're heading back to see the Cherokee as his, in his role as the Indian agent and he's bringing Ian with him. Jamie and Fergus kind of have this very sweet moment as they talk about what Fergus is about to do in acting as a salesperson for the Ridge in town which gives him a purpose that will take him away from the surroundings that have been causing him such pain over the past few months. Fergus kind of thanks Jamie for everything that he's done for him. And Jamie reminds Fergus that he's his son, you know, and of course these are the things that he, he wants the best for him. He wants him to be happy. He wants him to be healed. He wants him to be whole and lets him know that he still believes in him and that he should believe in himself. I sometimes think that Jamie forgets that he has been a father for years, regardless of the fact that he and Claire never raised a child together that she gave birth to for him because they lost their first baby daughter um, in France. But nonetheless, he is and always has been a great father. He really has. He raised Ian. He raised Fergus. Um, and even though he met Brianna as an adult, he's been da ever since that moment arrived and never really taking taking anything from Frank, but kind of stepping into the role of father um, as was kind of appropriate for them and for their relationship. And I love that about him. But I feel like sometimes he forgets that he has been doing this job for a pretty, pretty many years, actually, at this point. Um, and I really kind of feel like Fergus of all the children has probably benefited the most, benefited the most from his influence and his support and love because Fergus has literally not left his side since basically he was taken into, taken into their family. Um, aside from, you know, Jamie being in jail for years and whatnot, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the only time that they had been really separated from the moment that they that they met. The same guns that uh, McDonald came to deliver are now being tested in the field by members of McDonald's regiment, Roger, Brianna, and Jamie. Brianna kind of starts to have a real change of heart. Her mood starts to begin to shift and she remarks that Roger is getting better but seems distressed by something. And this is where we notice that there's a shift or change in her energy. When she leaves the group, Jamie finds her looking rather sad, kind of standing in front of the house on the on the porch. And she explains that by that providing the Cherokee with the guns won't be enough to save them. And that in as little as 60 years from that time, they will be removed from their land and thousands of them will die. So of course, this leads us all as the audience to ask ourselves, what would we do with this type of knowledge? And considering the time that this is happening, how do you even tell someone something like this? Well, Jamie kind of figures out how. Shortly after, Jamie and Ian leave to go and deliver the guns to the Cherokee. When they arrive, they realize that they're not alone and that they are not the only ones there to do business with the Cherokee and that some of some of the Mohawk have also arrived and have begun trading with the Cherokee as well. Well, this sends Ian into a spiral because he recognizes two of them. And it is this moment that 
prompts him to finally begin to tell his story of what happened while he was there and what sent him back to the ridge. What I love about this story is the explanation that the Mohawk women choose their husbands. I kind of love that. I mean, like, hey, ain't nobody, ain't nobody out here on a pick me, but a man. Mm, love it. Um, but it also seems that they can choose someone else, even if the husband loves their wife. And if she's over it, she can pick another man. Can you imagine? Ooh, the scandal. Well, considering that men can be super jealous, well, just like women, but I mean, men act like they ain't never jealous. They could be totally jealous, just as jealous as women. And petty. I imagine that this is probably going to be something that leads to many fights, and it certainly does in this particular instance. The truth is painful to watch as it relates to Ian, and we realize that Ian lost his first child and then another child. The first child, um, she was fully about maybe about six months along when, when she lost that baby. And so, you know... He was deeply affected by that. Jamie kind of listens, a little brokenhearted for his nephew over his lost love and children. Um, but he doesn't jump in or interrupt too much and he just allows Ian to speak. And I feel like he is super grateful in that moment because he's obviously been wondering and Jamie, not really the type to pry. So he's just kind of letting Ian open up to him finally. Back at the ridge, Claire is testing her ether and she wants to be able to assess because, you know, with anesthetic and that is actually the word, it's an anesthetic. <laughs> um, it has to be provided, the, it has to be dosed correctly. So you fall asleep when you're supposed to fall asleep and wake up when you're supposed to wake up and you're not finding yourself waking up in the middle of a surgery. So in order for her to assess how, what the correct dosage is for this, she uh, basically pulls Malva, um, Lizzie, and Josiah into her experiment and uses it on it, uses the ether on them, well, not Malva, um, but on Josiah and Lizzie to test it. Um, now, it's clear that Malva is eager to learn, uh, but I suspect that her desire is wholeheartedly self-serving. Even the way that she kind of explains how the ether works to Josiah seems a little bit off to me. Like she revels in the fact that someone under ether wouldn't feel a thing, no matter what you did to them. Like I really, at this point, I really wanted to be wrong about the girl, but I think that I'm going to end up right. And because I know that I am, I mean, whatever, sorry, spoiler alert, but you guys do that when you press play. Lizzie and Josiah uh, come through the pudding under with no issues and Malva kind of decides she has yet another secret that she'll be glad to keep from her father. Because Claire's like, don't tell daddy about this because you know he is not going to understand, girl. You keep all this surgery stuff to, between ourselves. But here's the thing. Thomas really does not like the fact that Malva's doing this, but Malva continues to do it. That's a little bit not likely. Like if Thomas really didn't want Malva to be Claire's apprentice. He would actually just forbid her and then therefore she would not be. So this idea that, oh, it would displease him. I don't know how really valid that is. Like, feel like she would just do what she wants anyway, because that's what she's been doing. Recounting the tale and then, so blah, we go back to the Mohawk. Ian has finished telling his story but recounting the tale to Jamie kind of only makes his feelings that much more real and any healing that he may have had over the time that he's been back finds all of those feelings fresh and at the surface and made worse when Ian discovers that his ex-wife 
has had a son with his brother. Now, not brother by blood, but Mohawk brother. Like they were best friends. Um, and it kind of like is a lot for him. And then he ends up attacking him. But there's more going on here. The Mohawk are not the only ones trading with the Cherokee, as I mentioned. There's another Indian agent and his name is Scotchy. And he kind of jumps in when Ian and his brother, I cannot say his name and I'm not even going to attempt to try because you know I'm going to butcher it. I really don't want to do that. Um, but Scotchy jumps in to intervene between Ian and his brother and it kind of leads to this kind of disrespectful uh, interaction between Scotchy and Ian's brother and results in a request for a duel. And you can really kind of see that Ian really feels responsible because if he hadn't, then dude wouldn't have jumped in and wouldn't have ended up in this situation. But after talking to Jamie about the heartbreak, he comes to realize that he needs to find balance with the two halves himself, halves of himself. Ian Murray, the Christian, and and the Wolf's brother, who he has now become. Which I feel like is the theme of these kind of last two episodes for Ian. He's really trying to reconcile himself within himself. Jamie kind of tells Ian about... Jamie ends up telling Ian about Faith, the first child that he and Claire had, and tells him that he never had the chance to meet nor hold her like Ian and his daughter. And he, it actually kind of brings Ian some peace. This is literally my favorite moment of the episode, uh, which I will play for you a little bit later. Ian then gives his former Mohawk brother a pistol for the duel so that he has a chance. And his brother reciprocates by basically saying, if anything happens to me, can you go to her, go to Emily, her English name, the, the name that Ian gave her, go to Emily, take care of her, take care of our son. Um, and, and Ian accepts. From that point, Jamie kind of decides to do something that he's really never done before. And that is to warn the chief of the Cherokee of what is to come in the future. And the way that he explains it is actually, it's a comical conversation, serious, but still funny. The chief kind of agrees to pass on the warning to his descendants so that they continue to pass it on, um, as they go. And Jamie says, don't try to fight, uh, like don't try to save yourself, just hide. Hide until the time passes, until you're safe. Um, and says to him also, no matter who you're going to, no matter what conflicts arise, just make sure you guys fight for yourselves. You can choose a side, but always choose yourself above everybody else. The chief um, responds by asking, and so Jamie explains that his the women in his family can see the future. And so um, the chief responds by asking Jamie how much he's paid for his wife. Jamie responds by saying, well, she's cost him almost everything. And he ain't never lied. Not one day, not one day. He told the whole truth. The chief respects that response. And well, naturally, it's because it's true. And he could tell that <laughs> it probably is. So back in the open uh, open camp, it's time for this duel between Scotchy and Ian's brother. And Scotchy basically tries to cheat because he's drunk. And Ian stops him from killing and shooting, shooting and killing his brother. Because he does this, he basically, the brother now has an opportunity to shoot at Will because everybody, it's it was witnessed, right? So Ian's brother decides to let Scotchy live and Ian finally kind of accepts what has happened, saying goodbye to the relationship with between him and Emily forever. He sends his wolf's head carving down the river. It's the one that Emily gave to him um, and decides it's time to return to the ridge. And Ian decides he can be both Wolf's brother and Ian Murray because those two halves are now a part of one whole. It was very 
hard to see Ian, like who's such a jovial boy, prankster, mischievous, become so heartsick and sad most of the time. He just was like heavy and he it, the whole experience weighed him down and the fact that he couldn't be with Emily any longer really weighed him down. So I was really happy to finally get an answer. Um, and that really, it's just heartbreak. And um, to see like that aspect of his life, I'm really glad that they actually spent some good amount of time there. Um, I'm not sure that the belief that sent Ian back to the Ridge was like the right philosophy, but I guess the goal is to have a family. So like Ian had to go back to the Ridge because she kept losing the babies and she was just kind of like, I guess in discussion with the other women of the tribe, it was like, well, you know what they say, it's the husband. So try a new husband. And she was like, all right, because you know, she wants to have a family. So, um, it's quite interesting to me in this particular depiction of Mohawk society that the man's seed must be strong. And yet, simultaneously, in this era, in white society, the woman must be the one who's considered fertile. And if no children are being born, it's her fault that she can't bear children. Yet, yet, at this time, the Indians are the ones who are the savages, when it seems to be that they have the right system in place all along. Interesting, right? So basically at this point, I'm really kind of starting to get Leary vibes from Malva. Remember how Leary was kind of like just around and like how she would kind of inserted herself into like Claire's life to kind of like see if she could be Claire's friend and, and see if she could like get Claire to help her earn her, like take, like figure out what her secrets are, earn her trust, earn her confidence. That's what I think Malva is doing. Um, so when Claire leaves her alone with her notebook, I was immediately suspicious. Like, what is this girl going to do? Like, really, what is she going to do? Moments after that happens, Jamie has returned and Claire rushes out to meet him, locking them in the barn, remembering his ardor when he had returned the last time. And this little bold-faced heifer, tricksy little Malva, perches on her tippy-toe to watch them. Like, can you... Go do something. This is none of your business. This is grown folks' business. This is married folks' business. What you need to go is to go take yourself on somewhere and go find yourself your own middle man and, and be married. You 18 at this point. You should have done been married already. Like, come on. Like, what are you doing? These are the reasons why, like, I have no faith, no trust, no hope for this girl. Like, I'm just like, who does that? Anyway, here's the thing. I still can't get past the just came off the road and now I'm going to seduce the horsey smelling man. Like, why am I doing that? Like, go bathe. Go wash off yourself. Like, I don't, I don't, it's not hot. I don't care. Stink is not hot. I don't care how hot the man is. It's not hot. Okay. I said what I said. But I really kind of feel like Claire must like a musty smelling man because I can't seem to suspend belief long enough to get down with his idea. Like, it's gross. <laughs> But before the fireworks, Jamie decides he's going to resign as Indian agent and become the rebel that he knows he is in his heart, which is where the episode then ends. Up next, favorite moments followed by review. Yeah. Favorite moments followed by episode rating followed by Twitter me laughing. I know you want to. It's you, not what you do or give, provide. It's you we need. That is literally like. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love that so much. I love that so much. This, I just, it just goes to show you just how great of a father Jamie really is. And how what he needs, he's speaking to him like man to man. Like, yes, it's his son. But at the end of the day, they're both men. And he needs to understand from a man's perspective, this heavy burden of like provision and uh, protection that comes with being a man. Regardless, like it doesn't matter whether this is 1770, whatever, or 2022, men still feel this way. And that pressure can be horrifying. And it can come out in a way that is what's happening with Fergus, like guilt for when things go wrong and this overwhelming sense of failure for when things go wrong. And that can lead to addiction. And then that's what we see is happening here. Um, and then Fergus feeling like, you know, embarrassed about everything that happened at quarter day and all of that, like this is the result. So what he needs to hear is from a man's perspective that it's not just about what you can give and what is more important is who you are and that you are here with us and that you're experiencing this life with us. That's what's most important. And I mean, oh gosh, just give it to Jamie for just being the stand up amazing person that he is. Yeah, he's fictional. I know, I know, I know. No, no need to send help. She was a shipper. Is it my fault she's gone? Is God punishing me, bringing him here to remind me? No, lad. Don't think it. God does not punish. We need to trust he has a plan. He's gracious. My daughter Faith. She was also lost. I never held her either. Life comes death. And after death, we come home to the Lord. How long the first shall last, we cannot see. I, again, this is Jamie being a dad. Um, and I think that's like a really big focus of this particular season is his relationships with his children perceived or like biological or otherwise. Um, and him just kind of like trying to comfort Ian by telling, like giving Ian an example of things that he has himself have been through and the, how he chose to handle it and ways that Ian can kind of think about what's happening. But at the very end of this scene, Jamie says, you know, come, let's pray. And, you know, I'll ask, ask, um, basically it's like saying, I'll ask God to, um, 
have my daughter find yours. Like, um, wah, wah, like all the tears in all the tears. So sweet, so emotional. I like Jamie's just, just the best. He's just the best, just the best. So I said at the beginning of this review episode that I didn't have any hated moments. The only moment I really kind of disliked, but I'm biased because I don't really like the character, uh, was when Malva was getting beaten. Again, I mean, this is the complexity of Thomas Christie. We, in general, I think the audience is not necessarily supposed to like him, but we are supposed to feel a little sympathetic towards Malva in regard to how he treats her. Um, but I don't really like Malva either, so it's kind of hard-pressed to get me in the, to be sympathetic for that girl. Sorry, not sorry. Up next, Twitter me laughing. <laughs> so you know that this particular part of the show is always dedicated to tweets that I have read about the show that I find very interesting or funny or relatable by other Twitter Twitter users who are watching the show and doing exactly what I'm doing, tweeting and watching at the same time. So here we go. So this tweet is the one I was talking about. <laughs> it's from the Hugenverse, at Hugenverse. And yes, it's a stand account for Sam Hugen who plays... If you don't know that Sam Hugan plays Jamie Frazier, what are you doing here? Anyway, <laughs> fan account. Who tweeted a picture of the note that Thomas Christie left Claire. The picture reads, obviously, uh, from the, up, the episode, this is filth, I thought better of you. Fun, And the tweet says, fun fact, Thomas Christie invented mean tweets. Hashtag Outlander. Yeah, right? He did. And he has excellent penmanship. I do say so myself. Also, well, actually, I think I mentioned this already, so I'm going to keep it moving to another tweet. So as I record this, it's Sam Hewen's birthday. And rather than continuing to dig for a whole bunch of tweets that I should have already saved, yes, I'm admitting the truth. I cannot locate the tweets that I wanted to for episode four. So there's that one tweet that I just shared with you from episode three. But we're going to close out Twitter Me Laughing with just happy birthday, Sam. Thank you for bringing to life one of the most exquisitely written male leads in literature and on television. Like I said, he is an archetypical character and probably second to only Superman. <laughs> I have high standards, y'all. I got high, high standards, all right? And at the top of them standards is Superman and Jamie Frazier. Yes, I know they're fictional. No help is required. Guess what? That means that means we've come to the end of the episode. We've come to the end of the episode. I'm not going to keep you guys here any longer. You've already been here with me for about 40 something odd minutes. A little bit old, uh, just about 50. If you listen to the whole thing in one shot, good for you. Binge this bitch. Jump into the next review. If it's available. If not... <laughs> Press pause, go do something else until I upload the next one, okay? That might take a couple of days. Don't just be sitting here waiting for me, all right? I know you've got things to do, so do I. 
Anyways, this is your girl, your bestie, Nicole, aka Nikki. This is the Obsessible Podcast, and this has been your Outlander, Episode 3, Episode 4, Review. Enjoy!